welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it could be working, and what we might be able to do about it. In Series 1, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In Series 2, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. This is Series 3. In Series 3, we're looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. We'll be using our understanding of what bits of our political system aren't working and why they aren't working to explore ways in which we might be able to change things around a bit to make it all work a bit better. Importantly, whilst we'll be sharing our ideas, we'll also be sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Welcome to episode 33 of Taking the Party Out of Politics. Today we're going to wrap up our look at how we solve some of the big challenges facing us and our political system. Yes, that's right. We've spent the past year or so detailing the problems. And in this series, we've taken our understanding of the problems, our understanding of why things aren't working as well as they should be working, and we've started to bring together some of the best ways in which we could change things. And it is about changing things, tweaking things, adjusting things. It isn't about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are many good things in our political system, and we should keep the good things. But we shouldn't be overawed by the good things. We should acknowledge where there are shortcomings, and we should work out how to fix them. Today, we're going to bring all those ideas together by looking at the overall idea here, changing the way we use the system. Or, if you like, what we could all start doing today to make things a little bit better. Because, yes, the current system needs some tweaks, but those tweaks aren't going to happen overnight. In the meantime, what can we actually do to make the existing system work a bit better, perhaps even to hurry forward the day when we can tweak the system itself? So, the way in which we use the current system. We need to look at whether there are better ways of communicating what we want to happen, rather than just select a representative who is perhaps very slightly more interesting to us than any of the others on offer, and to be making that selection only once every five years. We're not children who need to be led. We're intelligent members of a mature democracy. We value being part of a functioning society, and we're sufficiently well-educated that we're able to think. So, what could we do differently? First today, we're going to look at three of the big things which some people might think would be the best ways of getting the best out of our system today. Whether people care enough, whether there should be more consultation, and whether there should be more petitions. Then we'll look at what other things we could actually do. So, first, is the problem that people don't care or don't care enough? Absolutely not. People are passionate about all sorts of stuff, and they campaign on all sorts of different things, Occupy the city, marching against war. For example, Iraq, the biggest ever march. And it changed nothing. The Countryside Alliance, protesting about student fees. The climate, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil. 
even professional associations protest, like teachers protesting about the government forcing all schools to become academies. But when we campaign about such things, we're separate. The thinking is not, or at least not obviously, linked up. The government might make supportive or interested noises, or not. The government might actually discuss things, or not. But an expression of a million people walking in the street is actually pretty easily ignored. The government might not actually do or change anything. And without looking at the linked-up implications of what we're all asking for, separately, it might actually be right not to do or change anything. That said, we should not lose sight of the fact that some people become disengaged, or at least are at risk of becoming disengaged, because they don't believe that society or government cares about them, or has their interests at heart. Polly Toynbee and David Walker, in their book Cameron's Coup, said, quote, Young adults are now more individualist, doubtful about the value of state support, and suspicious of redistribution through welfare. The young are less collectivist by instinct. They're not inactive over what they think are important, but drawn to single-issue politics, unquote. Well, which one of the protests I mentioned here actually made the government stop in its tracks and think again? Actually, it wasn't the one that got the most people out in the street, and it wasn't the one that lasted longest. It was the professional association, and unions and others, to be fair, it was the professional association of teachers getting together and stopping the government, forcing all schools to become academies. We are stronger together. Second, then, should there be more consultation? Yes, but probably not in the way that you think. There is already quite a lot of consultation, mostly over relatively small local issues. Where should this road go? Around your town or through it? Should there be residence parking outside your house? Should we build the park near to where you live? That's important, of course, but that sort of consultation is limited for two reasons. First, the nature of being human is that we will all think differently about something which is happening to us personally rather than to everyone. For example, should we house newly released young offenders somewhere once they have finished their sentence and help them to find rewarding lives? Of course. But should we house them next door to you? Ah, the answer might be different to the second question, mightn't it? Second, most consultations allow anyone to have their say. And the authorities know that very few people will really understand everything. The information and the context might be there, but most people either won't read it or won't understand it. It's not necessarily brilliantly explained. And so consultations can be seen simply as a way of allowing the public to let off steam before the authorities do what they were going to do anyway. Well, that's not always true, of course. There are some consultations which are genuinely undertaken by great civil servants who really want to get the best possible input from the public. But not always. Consultation is hugely important. We need to pool expertise. No politician, no civil servant, no expert can have as many good ideas as can all of us together. But we need to understand how things affect everyone. We need to understand what the best advice is on the long-term impact, the long-term cost. And consultation needs to be structured 
in a way which enables useful, constructive outcomes. Not just something which is easy for the civil servant, not just something which suits a wealthy investor or a private company, one with good lobbyists. We need to respect minorities, because that's important. I might be in the majority today, but I might be in the minority tomorrow over a different issue. And I don't want to be in a country where an uncaring majority wouldn't listen to me. We need to look at solutions which are really good for the country, good for the people, and yes, good for the environment, good for our neighbours, and so on. So how could we do that? Well, third, is the answer just to sign petitions? Is online voting the answer, like YouGov or Change.org or 38 Degrees? Well, not on its own. First, the same point applies here. It's important that the situation is explained before you click to communicate your support. Your informed, considered opinion is worth so much more than your initial reaction, which might be, for example, your reaction only to part of the story or to an emotion-laden photograph. Do we really value an opinion which consists of the quick clicks of 100,000 people who've linked through from a social media feed, read a one-sentence introduction and looked at a mournful picture? That's not a set of informed, considered opinions. It doesn't reflect any real effort, any real commitment to thinking about the issue. And so online petitions don't have the sort of impact, at least on government thinking and on policy, which they could have. YouGov, for example, asks interesting questions. But that's all they do. Ask questions. There's no background information, no context. Either you know or you don't. If you don't know, your vote counts just as much as the opinion of someone who's just read about the issue in any one of our different newspapers. And even having read about it in a newspaper, well, that doesn't necessarily make your opinion informed in a balanced, rounded way, does it? We all know that any one newspaper, even one we might like, has a particular angle on things, a particular perspective, a particular agenda, perhaps. In fact, your uninformed opinion actually undermines an informed opinion if it's given the same weight. A collection of potentially uninformed votes, well, it's just too easy to justify ignoring it. Second, a set of votes on a single issue in isolation, well, it's also easy to justify ignoring that. Government involves more than just saying, I want this one and this one and this one. Government consists of making choices. This, but unfortunately, not this. In fact, politics is sometimes described as the art of the possible. For exactly that reason, no nation is ever rich enough, no budget is ever big enough to do everything, not even if you're Norway. Politics is about choosing to do this thing, but understanding that we will therefore not be able to do this other thing as well, because we can't afford to do both. And that can be pretty complicated. Not impossible, as long as at a reasonably broad level, it's not too detailed, big issues and general themes are possible. We can't all get involved in every little detail, but it's certainly possible for all of us to understand the big stuff and to put our ideas together about it all. So our opinions would have more power if they're combined across a range of linked, reasonably high-level themes, and they would have more power if they were properly informed. And if we can demonstrate that our opinions are properly informed, then the expression of those opinions, whether through online surveys or demonstrations in the street, well, the expression of those opinions 
would carry more weight. They'd be harder to ignore. So, after considering those ideas and finding they're not the answer, well, what can we actually do? It's not that people are not voting enough, nor is it that they don't care. The problem here is that the structure of the way things work out not just enables, but actively encourages short-term thinking and a lack of serious consultation. The problem is that we've been taught to think that the ballot box is enough to ensure that things are magically done better, simply through a change of colour at Westminster. But it's not. The next lot faced the same media pressure, the same need to grab headlines, the same pressures to avoid dealing with the wicked issues, the same urgency to make a mark, any mark. There are two perspectives which need to be taken here. First, there's what we need to do as individuals so that the ways in which our politicians and governments act are different. Second, there's what we need to do in terms of looking at how we use the systems differently. We'll look further at that in the next section. As individuals, we need to ensure that we're better informed and to ensure that our elected representatives know that we are better informed. Not about scandal or about the news of the moment. In fact, there are some interesting questions about whether the news is helpful to us at all. As human beings, we're influenced by two strong tendencies. Tendencies which are perhaps innate parts of just being human. The first tendency is the negativity bias. Essentially, we remember stuff which is bad more than we remember stuff which is good. Now, this was important when we were sitting around the campfire, when we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. It was important to be aware of dangerous stuff. It was important to be aware of what things might kill us or eat us. Better to have our awareness of dangers reinforced even perhaps more than might strictly be necessary, than for us not to notice the warnings, because it only takes one missed warning for you to die. But the world isn't like that now. The world around us simply isn't as dangerous as it was when we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. We live longer, healthier, safer, more productive lives, even allowing for our tendency to overeat. Our negativity bias, however, means that we're still tuned to listen to bad stuff. We focus on the bad stuff. We notice it. That's what we remember. And that's what colours the way in which we see the world around us. Let me give you a little example. Towards the end of 2022, Oxfordshire County Council, after a long period of consultation, brought in some filters at six points around the city of Oxford. These are traffic cameras which will count the number of times you drive down some of the key routes, routes across the city centre and a couple of routes on inner ring roads. It isn't stopping anyone from driving on the roads, just limiting driving on those roads to only twice a week, on average. 100 times a year is the actual limit. The idea is to ease traffic on key roads so that the buses operate more smoothly, so that there's more reason to take the buses in the first place. The filters won't stop you from using those roads, just limit the number of times a year you use them. And it won't stop you from driving from one end of the road to the other because you could always go round. You could use the outer ring road rather than the inner ring road, for example. But some independent reporting of this suggested that the Marxists, I don't really know where that came from, but I think it's supposed to be a term of abuse. The Marxists at Oxfordshire County Council were going to lock down residents into their zones to stop them visiting other zones. Now, the reporting made it sound like some sort of post-apocalyptic fascist dictatorship. Again, 
I'm not sure about the term fascist or Marxist, but we'll let that one go. It certainly made for attention-grabbing headlines and reading, because it sounded so negative. And we all have a tendency to fear that authorities might be out to control us. But that wasn't the way it was reported. Not at all. The second human tendency when it comes to news is the availability bias. This means that we assume that the things we have noticed in the news are relatively common. We hear stories about bombings or child abductions or terrorism, and those stories tend to stick in our minds. And what is then in our minds affects the way in which we view the world. Even though the world is actually safer. Even though people live longer, better lives, we still tend to see the world as more and more dangerous. Perhaps this is an inevitable consequence of 24-hour news channels and Twitter feeds and Facebook bubbles. Every digital and broadcast outlet is trying to grab our attention, because if nobody's paying attention, then they're not selling advertising or not justifying what they're doing. And since every news outlet knows what will grab your attention, since they all know what will shock you, what will horrify you, what will make you click for more details, well, what every news outlet does is to provide us with more and more extreme examples of what's happening in the world. What we don't get is the news story that a reporter is standing in a place where today there's no conflict. What we don't get is the news story that today there are 137,000 fewer people living in extreme poverty than there were yesterday, even though that could have been the news story every day for the last 25 years. Actually, the world is getting better, but that's not newsworthy. Actually, the world is getting safer, but that's not going to grab our attentions. There are challenges we really need to deal with on climate change, so perhaps that should always be the lead story in the news. But what we get is other stuff. Stuff which is likely to worry us. Stuff which is likely to frighten us. Stuff which makes us assume the world is a dangerous place, and that most people in it are likely to be dangerous to us. Over the years, I've worked in many different places around the world, and I, I worked in Cairo for a while. When I said I was going there, many people were worried about me. The stories they had in their mind about Egypt were that it was a dangerous place. Beheadings in the desert. Tourists being machine-gunned on a coach. Yes, those things happened, but not that recently. And every day, nearly 100 million people in Egypt don't die. Nearly 100 million people in Egypt are nice people. People who will smile and greet you when you walk past them in the street, even if you're walking through an area where tourists don't go. Of course you have to be sensible, don't take silly risks, but are you not going to go outside in the UK because there was a bomb outside a pop concert in Manchester several years ago? Things happen in the world, but every day most people don't have a problem. Most people are happy, and most people are happy to exchange a smile, a nod, a hello, and most people will help you if you have a problem. We need to ensure that we're better informed about the big stuff, about the long-term trends and about how things are changing, and about how they could be changing differently. We need access to considered summaries of what's important, not attention-grabbing headlines and endless speculation about what might be happening. And we probably need some way of demonstrating that we are up to date, that we've thought about the basics. So, how do we do that? Well, there are at least three ways which I would suggest. Full fact, dollar street, knowledge games. Full fact. Well, not just Full Fact, but Full Fact was the fact-checking organisation which I first noticed, checking up on the accuracy of statistics which were being thrown around by politicians. People make mistakes. 
Sometimes people just get the wrong end of the stick. They quote a statistic out of context or draw the wrong conclusions from the numbers. Sometimes deliberately, sometimes just by mistake. Fact-checking organisations like Full Fact, and many other really good ones, exist to check the accuracy of the facts which have been used by politicians and other public figures. They check the accuracy of the facts so that we can check the validity of the conclusions which are being drawn from those facts. If the facts are wrong or are in the wrong context, then perhaps the action which is being taken on the basis of those facts is also wrong. Or perhaps that action is going to be counterproductive or not achieve its own objectives. Fact-checking is slower than the headlines. The headlines want to be the first. They want to grab your attention. Fact-checking takes time. And a little bit of time, a little bit of perspective, well, that's a good thing. Perhaps we should spend at least part of the time that we currently spend consuming the news, that's listening to or reading the news, perhaps we should spend some of that time listening to or reading reports from Full Fact, or listening to the radio or podcasts from programmes like More or Less, who check the numbers behind the stories. That might give us some extra perspective on the news stories. That might help us to listen to the news with a bit more understanding, to listen to the stories with a bit of a critical eye, not just to assume that the first headline is correct. The first headline might just be the first impressions from someone in the middle of a disaster situation. It might just be an attempt to make you to buy this newspaper rather than that newspaper. But we shouldn't be using headlines, the knee-jerk reaction of the moment, as a way of understanding the world. Dollar Street, well, Dollar Street is an initiative from Gapminder.org. Gapminder started with the work of a Swedish public health official, Hans Rosling, and is continued now by the foundation which he and his family started. Gapminder is based on the fact that, at best, we probably remember statistics about the world based on what we learned at school. And even when we learned those statistics, they were at least a few days, or perhaps weeks, or perhaps months, or perhaps years, out of date at that point. The facts about the world change all the time. As soon as they've been collected, they've changed. And by the time they've been collected and sorted and published, they've changed quite a lot. And if we only remember information about poor countries from what we studied at school, and how many years ago was that, well then our understanding of the world is certainly out of date. If we're viewing the world based on our misconceptions, then we're not understanding the world correctly. We form prejudices, even with the best will in the world, and we make assumptions. And those prejudices and assumptions are not all helpful. Dollar Street is part of the Gapminder Foundation and aims to change our assumptions by comparing the facts of everyday life around the world. There are loads of other great tools on the Gapminder website. Try the Worldview Upgrader. It's a little quiz designed to help you to understand where your knowledge about the world might be a little bit out of date, or misplaced, or just wrong. And related to Upgrader, There are other possible knowledge games. I put one together. Talk Together is an app available for free on Google Play in the UK. It's based on the idea of a trivial pursuit type competition with friends, where the questions are statistics and facts about the UK and recent UK history. You could try that, and you could make some suggestions about how it could be improved. But the idea, I think, is a good one. Using the sorts of games we like to play anyway, with friends, quizzes, perhaps we can keep our knowledge about the world ticking over. What do you think? Do you have any suggestions for how we could improve the Talk Together app? And why should you bother? Why should you care? Well, I like this quotation from the writer Ken Follett. It wasn't intended directly with reference to what we're talking about here, but I think it still applies. Quote, 
If you don't take an interest, then what happens is your fault. Unquote. Well, moving on from our understanding of the world, well, at the heart of this entire project is the idea that we could share our best ideas and use the existing systems differently. This is the second thing which we could do. And it's really about all the things we've talked about in this series, from citizens' assemblies to citizen scrutiny to citizen government to citizen information to citizen thinking. With citizens' assemblies, we have citizens, not elected politicians, who are too worried about their chances of getting re-elected. We have citizens trying to work out how best to address the real challenges of our world, the wicked issues. With citizen scrutiny, we have citizens not elected politicians who are too worried about being good party members and advancing their own careers. We have citizens checking up on what our government and ministers are doing. And with citizen government, we have the idea of people like us, rather than career politicians, people like us being the government, or at least doing part of the work of the government. To underpin all of that, we'd need to be sure of two things. First, that we were basing our decisions on the basis of clear facts on the best advice, beyond a world of fake news, being clear about reliable information so that we really understand the world as it actually is, a pool of independent citizen information. And the second thing we need to be sure of, if we're going to go down the route of having a really effective citizen government, would be that we were sharing all the best ideas, not just from the citizens who are directly involved in the delivery of citizen government at any particular time, but from all of us, from any of us, because none of us is as clever as all of us together. Citizen thinking and citizen ideas. Here, we're inviting you to email us or message us through the Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter. There might be other technological solutions too. What about a website where ideas could be pooled and everyone could have a look at the ideas and like the ideas which really seem to have something good about them so that the best ideas came to the top and then we encourage our politicians to have a look at the best, publicly generated, publicly sorted, publicly rated and ranked ideas. What do you think? Could we do that? Well, the technology is more or less there to enable us to do so, if we wanted to. We need to change the pressures on the system. We need to enable a system which allows and encourages politicians to represent us properly and to be competent administrators, possibly supported by more citizen involvement in government, from voting and thinking to checking and getting things done. And most of all, perhaps the simplest and the most demanding of all, we need to be better and better informed users of the system ourselves. So that's it. Changing the system, eventually. Changing the way we use the system as soon as possible. And changing the way we are ourselves now. Or at least as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. Have a look at Gapminder. Have a look at Dollar Street. Perhaps test yourself on the Talk Together app or by playing a quiz game against your friends, just for fun. Make sure that you check out the stories behind the news headlines so that you understand what is actually happening, not just what some newspaper owner or even an embittered campaigner with a blog, not just what they want you to think. What do you think? Could we really be better, be better informed, be better at selecting and even managing our governments and perhaps eventually to get better governments? Let me say that I am far from perfect. I do my best, but I know that it's still not good enough. A bit like exercise and not eating that extra chocolate biscuit. I am far from perfect, but I am trying to do better. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to have a look at the transcript of the podcast, including links to all our sources and references, and to all those other websites I mentioned, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, if you'd like to contact us, then please email us anytime on info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you will take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just also really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.